what we want to do uh, this morning and in the next few weeks is we're transitioning from journeying with Jesus to Jerusalem to now walking, Jesus is entering Jerusalem, and now we're going to walk with Jesus through Passion Week for the next few weeks. So this morning I want to try to cover Sunday and Monday. Uh, re- relatively, Luke doesn't really give us much on Monday. Um, and then next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, the following week, we'll do Thursday, Friday, and communion, that first Sunday of April. And then, as Bob said, we'll have Greg Phil come up here, uh, our district superintendent, on that second weekend, I think it's April 14th. Um, additionally, April 13th, that Saturday evening, my friend Sam is coming. He's, um, he and his wife live in Brooklyn, and they're missionaries with Jews for Jesus. Um, would love for you to be with us that night as he does a Christ in the Passover presentation. In fact, can you let me know if you're planning on making that a priority? Because if we set up and then it's only me, I'd rather just plan ahead and take him out for dinner. Because uh, I've seen the presentation before and he's doing it at Grace Point the next morning. So if you could let me know so that we have an idea, we'll do it in our uh, upper room uh, at the office there. Uh, but let me know if that might intrigue you. If not, no worries. Like, it's busy, or it's spring, it's busy, uh, whatever. Um, but just let me know, because then instead of unleavened bread, we can have wings on Saturday night. So, all right, so this is, this is just helpful, a tool for you. Um, maybe use it as a bookmark these next few weeks. And so we're going to focus on chapter 19 of Luke. Uh, this morning we'll go uh, chapter 20 and 21. I do in 22 next uh, next week um, as we kind of uh, make that kind of our goal these next few Sundays leading up to Easter. So in John 12, uh, as we as we kind of shift gears and we just sang the song Hosanna. Uh, Hosanna is well known for Jesus's so-called triumphal entry into Jerusalem right on Palm Sunday, where uh, as John records, Luke does not record palm branches or shouting Hosanna at all. And so we want to look at John chapter 12 first. Uh, John records this. um, And I want to give you a little bit of background, and then we'll jump to Luke 19, if that's okay. And if if I lose you somewhere in the middle, um, that's okay as well. I probably already lost myself, and we'll just try to make this all work. So John chapter 12. um, Before we read that, have you ever uh, wondered why they would celebrate Jesus on Sunday and then five days later hang him on the cross. Like, what gives? What? And you, even growing up as a kid, this is such a cool story. They're waving palm branches, they're singing Hosanna. Um, you get all dressed up on Palm Sunday and we celebrate this. But what went wrong from Sunday to Friday? Like, what was going on from Sunday to Friday that ended up uh, Jesus uh, essentially dying a criminal's death. Well, that's part of it, yeah, absolutely. Um, but it is a bit odd that uh, some people are celebrating him, they're going to be the same people cursing him a few days later, right? So John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, this is the Passover festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, uh, daughter Zion. Uh, Not Zion Williamson. 
this is Zion, Jerusalem. It's important to this weekend to clarify that, right? Shake your head, Rachel. Uh, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him uh, from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he performed the sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And so John records, you know, Jesus' entry. Jesus finds a donkey and rides it into Jerusalem, and they're waving palm branches uh, and shouting Hosanna, which a uh, Hebrew word for Lord save us. So it really begs the question, did they know what they were even saying? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Uh, John doesn't really spell out exactly uh, the dynamic of who he means by the crowd here uh, shouting these things out. So from there, turn to Leviticus, chapter 23. Maybe you were all there this morning, early, when you woke up. Leviticus. I want to give you a little bit of a background on what, why the palm branches are significant. And because it's, we're looking at Palm Sunday text, I feel like we have to address the palm branches. Uh, Luke doesn't, so we'll address them on the front end here. What did I say, Leviticus 23? So there's a ton of Old Testament stuff going on here, and tough, a ton of religious things going on, a ton of uh, political things going on. I want to give you a little bit of a background and give you a snapshot of what exactly Jesus was doing as he entered Jerusalem. Um, besides just uh, the facts of the narrative. What, what, what exactly this is all about? What exactly uh, are the biblical authors communicating? Because all four gospel writers record this. And that means it's extra important when all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record something uh, together. That's going to stress on the importance of it. So Leviticus 23, this is in a passage about festivals celebrating who God is and what he's done. God knows how to party, and so he uh, tells his people, we're going to party as well, we're going to celebrate some things. Uh, let's see, um, Leviticus 23, verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites on the 15th day of the seventh month of the Lord's festival of tabernacles begins... And it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work for seven days. Present food offerings to the Lord. And on that eighth day, hold as a sacred assembly and, and present food offerings to the Lord. It is closing uh, special assembly. It is the closing special assembly. Do no regular work. So what are they celebrating here? They're celebrating. It's fall. They've had harvest. They're celebrating. Thank you, God, for the harvest. And one of the implications here. Let's see what verse it is here. Um, make sure I'm in the right place. Uh, skip down to 39. So beginning with the 15th day of the 7th month, when you have gathered the crops, sorry, I started too early there. Uh, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival of the Lord for seven days. The first day is the day of Sabbath, and the eighth day is also a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival of the Lord for seven days each year. So this was known as the Feast or Festival of Tabernacles or Booths or Tents or 
your Bible might have a different uh, uh, name for it here. But in addition to celebrating the harvest, it says later in the text they're going to go live in a tent to celebrate God dwelling with his people in the tabernacle. Uh, so here, here's what's going on. They're thanking God for the harvest. But as part of their thanking God for the harvest, they're gathering palm branches among others and waving those palm branches. And when you get a bunch of people waving palm branches, what does it sound like? Anybody guess? When is it close, guys? Rain. And so, symbolically, the scholars uh, and, and uh, some extra-biblical literature are saying the waving of the palm branches is symbolizing or sounding like rain. So not only are they thanking God for the past harvest, but they're praying God, praying to God for the next harvest, specifically for rain. So even Solomon, when he dedicates the temple, he specifically has a prayer for rain, and it's part of this festival of tabernacles during that time frame. Does that kind of make sense? All right, so a little political background. We have a four or five hundred year time, four-ish hundred year time between the Old and New Testament. It's called the intertestamental period, or the silent period, because there's not a book of the Bible written, or there's no prophet speaking until John the Baptist enters the scene, right? Um, roughly. Uh, and so... Uh, during this time, uh, we have a guy named Alexander the Great in 330 BC, and Alexander the Great is conquering the known world, right? And so in conquering the known world, uh, not only does, does he want to conquer the world, he wants to culture the known world. And so he wants to bring Greek culture to everywhere he's going, right? And this is a process called Hellenization, right? So. Uh, that was really important if you look at, uh, especially the New Testament letters, uh, because Paul, the New Testament's written in Greek, but one of the things Alexander the Great did is he would go to these towns and build gymnasiums and build amphitheaters and all these kind of Greek culture into these uh, not Greek towns. And so not only conquering the world, known world, but culturing it uh, in a way. And so with this process, the Jews kind of started dividing into two groups of people. There were some very alienated against this Greek culture coming to dictate how we're going to live our lives. Then there were others that were just accommodating the Greek culture and embracing it. And so the Jews were kind of dividing on how we're responding to this uh, external occupation coming our way from Alexander the Great. And so uh, eventually a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, uh, he was... Uh, really fooled himself, he proclaimed himself to be Zeus, but he really went after the Jews. He wanted to make life hard, he outlawed circumcision. Um, he did all sorts of things uh, to get in their way so that they could not worship Yahweh. Uh, they could not follow the Old Testament teachings. Uh, and so with that, there eventually came a guy named Judah the Maccabee. You heard that name before? And so what, what comes to be known as the Maccabean Revolt, uh, whatever years later, approximately 150 years, I think, before Jesus was born. Um, but Judah the Maccabee, Maccabee means hammer. And so when you're going to lead a revolution, you want to have the name hammer, right? Like that just helps. So he must have had God on his side or something. So uh, he leads this war against the Greeks. They want to get their temple back. They want to be able to worship Yahweh again. Um, and so I'm really, uh, in a terrible way, paraphrasing a lot of history. So you can Google all of this stuff, right? Or actually read a history book for students. Um, that would be helpful to fill in some gaps here. 
Uh, and so part of this, um, and the Maccabean revolt is successful, the Maccabean revolution, right? They claim their temple again, they can worship properly again, uh, but one of the implications was that the Feast of the Tabernacles, or the Feast of Ten Taboos, was during war, and you can't take eight days off when you're in war, right? That wouldn't help. So they had to postpone their celebration of the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. So in the midst of this, uh, they, they get their Torah back, they postpone the Feast, and so when they finally come to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacle again, um, they need what well, the temple, and they need to light the menorah, and they find just enough oil to light the menorah, and it lasts for eight days so that they can celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This is also continued to be celebrated today known as the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, right? So that's a celebration after the Maccabean Revolt, uh, God's faithfulness in this little oil lasting that amount of time perfectly, and so eight crazy nights, as Adam Sandler calls it. Um, so, in the midst of this, the palm branch, as part of that Feast of Tabernacles, became a symbol of revolution. Uh, and so even in Jewish antiquity, we have coins with Judah the Maccabee on one side, his picture on one side, and a palm branch on the other. And so the palm branch became a symbol of revolution against foreign opposition coming our way. Um, symbol of revolution over foreign power. Does that all make sense a little bit? Where there could be great symbolism when John records them waving palm branches and singing Hosanna, a war cry, a battle cry, during the Maccabean Revolt, as Jesus himself comes into Jerusalem. So there's Old Testament background stuff going on, there's great political stuff going on, and so it really answers the question, why the triumphal entry? What's going on? Why did Jesus fulfill Old Testament by riding uh, a colt of a donkey, uh, fulfill other Old Testament in terms of what he communicated, well, it's really a question of what type of Messiah he would be. Would he be that Judah Maccabee type of Messiah and lay the hammer down on Rome? Because that's what they wanted, that's what they expected. right? And that's not what Jesus came to do. In his first coming, he came to bring peace, to seek and to save the lost as we've been looking at through the book of Luke. Right? And so it really is, the response as Jesus is entering Jerusalem is really a question of, who am I expecting him to be? What type of Messiah is Jesus, in fact? Do I have a misinterpretation of Old Testament uh, books or some of this Maccabean revolt? Is Jesus coming to free us from Rome and to create a political kingdom so that all will be well again because under Roman occupation, life is not that great? Okay, that brings us to Luke. Luke isn't going to mention the palm branches or the Hosanna, uh, but I think Luke has some other points that I think are a, a little bit simple in the context of the text. And so, I'm not going to read this. Uh, we left off last week in Luke 19. And uh, right after uh, Zacchaeus uh, climbs a tree so that he can see Jesus, Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, uh, let's have uh, dinner at your house today. Uh, but then, before Jesus enters Jerusalem in verse 28, uh, Jesus tells another parable. His last parable, obviously, before he's in Jerusalem. And it's a parable about a ruler. And uh, 
the comparable text in Matthew, Matthew's making a point about Jesus' second coming. Totally different point of the parable, and Matthew gives different details and goes in a different direction, different context altogether. Here, there's kind of a head-scratcher. Is Jesus giving this parable of this king to talk about when this king leaving and then returning, in in terms of talking about uh, the second coming and the judgment that awaits? I don't think so. You may think so. Agree or disagree. Or is he talking about money and treasures and finances and possessions? Because Jesus has been talking a lot about that. And this is about how this king leaves to go to another territory and his servants are handling his possessions. He's he's always in the right text. You've got to give it to him. And so I don't think it's about that either, but I think what Luke is doing here is he's comparing and contrasting two kings. A king of this earth, uh, because in this parable, this, this king, this master is described as evil, as wicked, as someone we don't want to follow. And he's going to come back and he's going to uh, just wipe people out. And I think Luke, and he's comparing and contrasting all through his narrative, I think Luke is going to compare that type of earthly evil king that doesn't care for his people versus the type of king that rides into Jerusalem on a donkey in great humility, bringing peace, not hostility. He's not coming to wipe out Rome and to get vengeance for Jews. He's coming to draw people to himself, coming ultimately to die on the cross, right? So I'm going to have you trust me with that paraphrase a little bit. So chapter 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, meaning this parable that he just said about this king, this bad king, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent uh, ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on, on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So Luke tells us who specifically is praising God here, right? He says his disciples, the great crowd of his disciples. Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, uh, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an abatement against you and encircle you and hand you on another side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Seems implied they're recognizing Jesus as king, but they're not recognizing appropriately 
when and how his kingdom is going to enter and be ushered in. Verse 45, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the temples, uh, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among them, uh, or sorry, the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. All right, so what's exactly going on? I think here's the point. Jesus enters Jerusalem, and the first thing that becomes very clear in the context here, if Luke really is comparing an evil king of this earth, the way people expect kings to rule, harshly, um, selfishly, not caring about anybody else, just himself and his own territory and his own wealth and all that kind of stuff. And, I mean, even, uh, even murdering his own people. Comparing that to Jesus as king. I think that's what Luke's doing here as Jesus comes into the city. So they're recognizing him as king, but his kingdom is not looking like they expected. They thought a Judah Maccabee, the Messiah would come and rule and reign with a rod of iron, and yet that's true of his second coming, not his first. So the kingdom is now, but not already, if you think in theological terms here. So in your bulletin, I have a couple of points there. First is this, when we recognize Jesus as king, we passionately celebrate him. Right? And so those who recognize Jesus, Luke has been giving us account after account of those recognizing Jesus, and then those comparatively not recognizing Jesus who he is. And so when we recognize Jesus as the king, as the Messiah, uh, as the king who humbly comes bringing peace, we celebrate him. And so in the text, the disciples um, follow his instruction and go get this colt of a donkey and bring it back to Jesus. Jesus gets on an unbroken colt. You know, they put their garments on the colt. Jesus hops on it, and then they put the garments as an act of honor to the king on the ground as Jesus rides into the city. So they're recognizing him for who he is, and they're worshiping, they're celebrating. Blessed is the king, quoting Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? They're not, right? Luke doesn't record palm branches or Hosanna or any of that dynamic. We think it's the same event, but I think Luke has a different purpose here. They're celebrating him because they recognize him for who he really is. And so, uh, under that point, uh, one of the implications is he's always in control, he is king. Right? So he gives them instructions, hey, there's a cult of a donkey over there. Go get that guy and bring him to me. Oh, well, what if the owner asks us why we're taking his cult? Oh, just say, the Lord needs it. And that's exactly what they did. That's exactly what happened. In fact, um, it even says in the text, uh, verse 32, those who were sent ahead, these two disciples, we don't know which two they are, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he's in control uh, as much as ever. He knows what's going to happen. Uh, he knows exactly the cult that is in some location that he needs to ride into the city, right? Um, and from, uh, from prophecies, riding in on a donkey was a kingly kind of thing, but in great humility and low status, right? So horses were known for military victories, Donkeys were not, right? And so he's riding on a donkey into the city in great humility, low status, right? He's not a king of this earth. He even entered in the most, kind of the, hum the humblest of means, right? In a potent village called Nazareth to 
um, an unmarried lady named Mary, uh, who God was working a miracle in, and yet in the most humble of circumstances, he enters our world, but in the same humble of circumstances, enters into Jerusalem to accomplish what he needs to accomplish. Also, Jesus is celebrated by those who recognize him for who he is. And so, in response, they, they're laying their clothes down and they're praising him. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that sound like familiar words in the book of Luke? <coughs> Peace on earth and glory. Sounds like what the angel tells Mary and then what the angels tell the shepherds, right, in Luke 1 and 2. Familiar words. Here it enters, it enters Jesus into our world, bringing peace, glory to God in the highest, and peace among men. And then, even though Jesus is recognized by some and celebrating, he's not recognized by all. But that should be obvious. It should be obvious by now who he is. So Jesus even says, hey, if you shut these guys up who are worshiping me or celebrating me, well, then even the rocks, inanimate objects, are going to celebrate me. So are you, a, are you smarter than a rock? Because the rocks are recognizing me for who I am. You should, too. It should be obvious by now that I am king, I am the Messiah, um, I am not ruling and reigning the way you expect me to in terms of a Roman uh, revolution here. And so it, it, one of my favorite verses, so verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Crazy. Like, and there's implications everywhere in terms of prophecy and uh, what does he mean in terms of this, you know, Stones rejected and being cornerstone and all, all sorts of things. So, uh, but the main point, we recognize Jesus uh, as the king. We passionately celebrate him. And then the second point that I think Luke is trying to communicate through narrating these, uh, uh, this event is this. Though we celebrate Jesus as king, we simultaneously grieve for those who have not yet embraced him. And so as Jesus comes in riding on a donkey in great humility and low status, but he is king. He's being recognized and celebrated. There's also people who are not recognizing him and not celebrating him. And what does he do? He goes straight to the temple. And so you can just say, Jerusalem and the temple, Jesus is speaking, uh, kind of directing his words and his tears towards the whole thing. And so what does he do? He, cry, he weeps over it, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he, weep, he wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes. And then he kind of forecasts impending judgment. Is he talking about the second coming where all will be judged? Or is he talking about the year 70 AD when Jerusalem will be destroyed or the temple will be destroyed? Maybe both. But he's saying, hey, it's not going to go well for you if you don't recognize uh, me. So he's grieving over them, his own people, who are missing him, right? After Jesus kicked Satan's butt in, in Luke 4, where does he first go? His hometown, right? His family, his neighbors, people who recognize him. And, and what do they do? They don't receive him. They want to kick him out. They want to kill him even. People that know him well. Some 30 years of you know, knowing this kid Jesus that grew up and working and doing all sorts of things. Right? And so now he's entering his own, right? It's, it's the center of the people of Israel, Mount Zion, the, uh, Jerusalem and the temple. And what is he doing? In the same way he's been rejected, 
And he's weeping over them because they're rejecting him. They're not seeing him for who he is. And impending judgment comes. And so he's weeping over them because he desperately wants them to see um, him for who he is and what he's about to do. So they're not recognizing him as king. And he's weeping for them because not only that, but they're going to be judged. And so the implications there are ongoing. Let me finish just with the end of this chapter. In the, in the uh, paper I passed out, we kind of lumped this in Monday. Luke doesn't really give us much Monday stuff. Other, um, other gospel writers kind of sandwich this in between cursing of the fig tree. And so some people call it fig Mon- you know, Palm Sunday, fig Monday. I don't know what we're going to do with Tuesday. We'll figure that out by next week. Um, but Luke doesn't record that. And so instead, just verse 45, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It's written... My house shall be a house of prayer, but you admitted a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. And so the escalation is growing. As we go into chapter 20, the religious leaders are going to try to pin Jesus in a corner and trap him with questions left and right. And then Jesus is going to turn it on them and ask them a question in return. But the escalation is building. There's great tension. It's bad. They want to kill him, but they can't because some people are getting it. Some people recognize him as king. They're hanging on every word. He's back at the temple, right? As a teenager, Luke's the only one that records that Jesus, as a teenager, goes to the temple and starts teaching, and the religious leaders are wowed by this guy's teaching, the 12-year-old. Right? And now he's back in the t- temple, and Luke is saying, hey, he's going to be in the temple every day teaching, People are embracing him, hanging on every word. They love him. They're recognizing him. Yet others are not, and the opposition is growing. The escalation is growing. It, it's going to get ugly fast. And so it makes you think of like this, this, these palm branches, this war cry of Hosanna being a cry for revolution. How Jesus was perceived as he enters Jerusalem is everything. What type of Messiah he would be, right? And so Luke is essentially using this story to continue to tell us, hey, some are recognizing Jesus. Some are seeing Jesus just like the blind man saw Jesus. Just like Zacchaeus, who was too short to visibly see him, hey, he saw Jesus. He recognized Jesus for who he is. Yet others are not. And not seeing Jesus, not embracing Jesus, is a very bad thing. It's bad news. Uh, and yet our heart grieves for those yet, just like Jesus weeps over the city, weeps over those who aren't recognizing him. So our heart grieves for those who don't treasure Christ. So the implication is we treasure Christ, we celebrate him, but though we celebrate him, we weep for those who don't. That sounds like a very practical tension to embrace. Like, how does that work? Emotional tension to embrace in terms of uh, recognizing Jesus and living in a world who is opposed to him and doesn't recognize him and is increasingly hostile to him. Like, how do we navigate uh, and walk uh, walking at it again. So, just some thoughts as we kind of journey, um, just kind of close with that. The escalation building uh, would encourage you to read some of these chapters ahead as we go into uh, chapter 20 and 21 uh, next Sunday. Uh, but we're just going to focus on Passion Week for a couple weeks uh, leading up to Easter. And I think it'll be really good just to kind of sit. Like, we don't have to wait till Palm Sunday to just do palm branches and recap the whole week. Like, let's. Uh, let's walk with Jesus through Passion Week, um, through Holy Week, through whatever you want to call it. So let me pray. God, thanks for your love, your ultimate love, your great humility, 
great dishonor even compared to the kings of this world. You came um, in such low status and humble means. Uh, and remembering back last fall, looking at Philippians 2, uh, of your great humility. And for me, for us to just emulate that, to look at your great love for us, that you became nothing uh, so that you could do for us what only you could do for us, what we could do for, our, for ourselves. And so uh, when we recognize you for who you are, we, want, we just want to celebrate. And we want to point people to you. Our hearts want to break for those uh, who don't embrace you. And so would you uh, work in and through us to be um, conduits of your grace and your love so that the world around us could see who you, you for who you are and embrace you uh, as Lord, as Savior, as King, as our Messiah. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.